Merry Christmas, everybody. Great to see everybody in this room, all those joining us online. Merry Christmas from whatever part of the country you're joining us in. Did you know that today, 385,000 children will enter the world today? And tomorrow, 385,000 approximately will enter the world. And the next day, and the next day, and the next day. But church, we're gathered this morning to remember a singular birth that occurred 2,000 years ago, that as wonderful as every child's birth is in this world, parents in the room, do you remember the day? Do you remember the sequence of events? Do you remember the emotion? It was wonderful. It was beautiful. Grandparents, do you remember some of you this year? First-time parents, first-time grandparents. It was wonderful. It was beautiful. But the birth we're discussing today that occurred 2,000 years ago goes in another category. When Jesus was born, it was wonderful and it was beautiful, but it was also eternity altering and prophecy fulfilling and time splitting. This was no ordinary birth, church. We're, we're gathered to remember the entry of God's Son in the world, a birth set apart from all the other births. And my prayer this morning is that you would, in a fresh way, be confronted with this reality of what it means for you and I today that God would come as a baby in this world. And so if you've got a Bible, open it up, Matthew chapter 2. Maybe you received the note sheet on the way in. If you didn't, you can, uh, online host can direct you electronically. You can, um, you can pick one of those up now at the tables in the back or pick it up on your way out. We're going to look, we've been looking at the whole month about the many ways that Jesus is the way. We've been lighting our Advent candles. We've been preparing. We've been waiting. We've been anticipating. The light is growing. Amen? It's growing. It's coming because Christmas week is upon us. And we've been looking at how Jesus is the way of hope and how Jesus is the way of grace and how Jesus is this morning a way of response. Because his entry in the world, it generated a wide range of responses and perhaps that's where this morning finds you. Kind of how do you, because when Jesus is born, you can't stay like on neutral ground with this birth. It's going to kind of press you in to a decision place. And we're going to look at three responses to Jesus' birth and let that be a bridge to our response here this morning. So Matthew chapter 2, we're going to look at the setting is Bethlehem, and then we're going to look at the response, three in particular from Matthew 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now, Bethlehem means so much to the people of God. I put in your notes the map of Bethlehem. It's only six miles south of Jerusalem. And there's a picture there in 1890 of the festive throng of Christians in that time period who were just making their way to Bethlehem. It was a city that was built on very fertile ground. Its name means house of bread. And I put in your notes just kind of a brief history of how significant, how significant this setting was for the people 
of God. In Genesis 48, it's where Jacob buried Rachel. In Luke or in Ruth 1, it's where Ruth lived with Boaz. In 2 Samuel 23, it's where David longed for the water from Bethlehem. In 2 Chronicles 11, it's the city Rehoboam fortified. In 1 Samuel 16, it was actually named the home and city of David. And then Micah 5, which they're going to quote here in a minute in this chapter, it's where the Jews knew the long-awaited Messiah would come. He would come to Bethlehem. Now here's the tension. There's a king named Herod on a throne in Jerusalem. And people are rolling into his palace while he's on his throne, and they're asking a question. Where is the king? Can anybody feel the tension that might rise? You don't just roll into the palace of a king and ask the question of the sitting king, where is the king? But that's what's going on with Herod. And here's what, that's why verse 3 says this way, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. Do you see that in your Bibles? Disturbed. I want to give you an image for disturbed. Here's a picture of, um, if you remember the Bible miniseries from years ago, it was kind of a film series. Go ahead and put it up there, Ted. A picture of Herod's face. This is their portrayal. He's coming. He's coming. There it is. That's how, that's how the miniseries, do you see that? That's Herod. That's a, that's a portrayal of him. That's when he's getting news about a king is born in Bethlehem named King of the Jews. This is disturbed. This is what you call an understatement in your Bible. He's furious. He's enraged. He wants to do something about it because when you're the king and you have all the authority and the power to do something about it, he wants to eliminate the threat. So verse 3, when all Jerusalem with him, when he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. Of course, they're going to say, in Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. And then they quote Micah 5. And then jump down to verse 7. Then Herod called the Magi secretly. Now, who are the Magi? They're like the philosophers. You need to think of the Magi that the name means one who has learned. In some of your Bibles, it might say wise men. This is the wise men in the story. They're like SEAL Team 6 for when you want to figure out a puzzle going on in the world. Like, there's just, you need wisdom, you need some guidance. You call the Magi because they have this kind of sixth sense, this instinct inside of them to kind of figure really difficult things out. So they call, he calls, he's like, well, I need to get the Magi on this. We got to go find this king who was born in Bethlehem, found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. Verse 8, he sent them to Bethlehem and said, this is Herod speaking to the Magi, go make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, notice, report to me. Yeah, that's how Herod operates. Just report to me. And then look at this line, so that I too may go and worship him. Huh. You want to believe that for a second? Is there anything about that visual portrayal of Herod that says he's interested in worshiping? This, if you knew anything about Herod's background, if you were close to him at all, you're like, there's no way he's interested in worshiping this Jesus. It's just a manipulation tool to get done what he wants to get done, which is eliminate the threat. Because this Herod is known, maybe remember from your world history classes, this is Herod the Great, who received the title, kind of self-appointed title, King of the Jews. 
because Rome appointed him to keep the peace over the Jews. He thought he was doing such a good job that he just kind of adopted the title King of the Jews. He also adopted the title Prince of Peace. Anybody feeling the tension rise? One called King of the Jews. One who will be given the title Prince of Peace, which the religious scholars would have been quoting him. The one born in Bethlehem has a title exactly like your title. And so Herod responds the way Herod has a history of responding. You know, this is the same guy who executed one of his wives, executed three of his sons. And when he was getting close to his death, this Herod decided, I'm not very well liked. That's an understatement. <laughs> He's not very well liked. He knew it, but he wanted to make sure that everyone was mourning, was crying, was shedding tears on the day of his death. So he rounded up some really well-known and well-liked Jewish leaders, put them in prison, told the officials, when I, the day I die, execute all of them. Because when all of them are executed, this whole area will be in mourning and grieving, which is what he wanted on the day of his death. This is Herod. So Herod... So his first response, so the Herod response to Jesus' birth, I put in your notes, I'd class it, is self-reliance and hostility. Inside of Herod is this posture that's this. You're not going to tell me what to do. Which Romans 8 says, inside of every human heart, there's a little Herod in here. There's a little Herod inside of us. You're not going to tell me what to do. I don't know, we, we, we've had kind of a living illustration of that for like 22 months as a nation. We're a bit on struggle street when it comes to any, like, authority telling us what to do. Sometimes we, right, we're just like, uh, you're not going to tell me what to do. This is that little Herod inside of us. Where we're just, you know, we're convinced we know better. Our way. We're in a position of control. We know how to handle this. We're going to get done what we want to get done the way we want to get it done. It's Herod's response to King Jesus' birth. His response is lean into himself. The kingdom of self gets larger and basically have this kind of mounting hostility to eliminate the threat. And to a certain degree, there's still... Herod-like responses going on to this week of Jesus' entry into the world. I had a friend recently who was telling me the story of they invited some guests to their home, and she didn't know one of the guests very well. Through the course of the evening, this one guest whom she didn't know well pulled her aside, pulled my friend aside and said, I'm really uncomfortable being in your home. You pray, you talk about Jesus, you talk about God, you talk about faith. She says, I'm an atheist, and I would just really appreciate it if you'd close your blankety-blank mouth about your blankety-blank God. And now, my friend is the host. She's hosting this family and extended gathering. But isn't it a little, isn't it? It's kind of a modern-day Herod response to this particular atheist. She says she's an atheist, and she's wanting everyone else to adjust to her position about the world and faith in God, never mind the fact that she's a guest in the setting, and maybe the adjustment should be shared. But the Herod-like, see the little Herod inside of us says, no, I want it my way. It's the kingdom of self. And everybody needs to adjust to me. That's Romans 8. In the language of the New Testament, it's called the sinful nature. 
It's where something inside of us says, you all adjust to the kingdom of self. And still today with Jesus' entry, and maybe this morning is, that self just needs to melt away a little bit. Maybe the little Herod needs to be dealt with inside of us in a fresh way. In your notes, I put this quote from Dallas Willard. He says, there is no growth in the kingdom of God apart from dealing with the kingdom of self. Or Tim Keller, a pastor in New York I greatly respect. According to the Bible, the evil of the world ultimately stems from, listen to this, self-centeredness, self-righteousness, and self-absorption of every human heart. Each of us wants the world to orbit around us and our needs and desires. That's one of the responses to Jesus' entry in the world. It's a Herod response. It's kind of, it's, it's tailored around self-reliance and hostility. It's this pushing back against anything that's going to push towards diminishing the kingdom of self. But it's not the only response in Matthew 2. We've got another group of people. Remember, Herod calls upon the religious leaders. Did you see that in the text? He, he calls upon them. He wants to get the scholars, the priests, the scribes, the teachers of the law. He wants to get them together, and he's asking them to give him clarity about where, because they know Micah 5, they know their Bibles well, they know what verses to quote, they know the traditions, they know the histories, they know the stories, but they might have missed something that happened six miles south in Bethlehem. You see, the priests and the scribes and the teachers of the law, it reminds me of a scene when 15 years ago, Kendra and I, during our sabbatical, we were able to visit the country of Italy, and we spent some time in Assisi. Those of you who have more Catholic background or more liturgical background, you'd probably know the name St. Francis of Assisi. He has a church there built in his memory where they believe they buried his bones kind of in that general area, and they built a church right over the top of it. The church was built in 1228. I put in your notes a picture of the outside of the church. If you ever get an opportunity to go to Assisi, it is worth the visit to just go to this cathedral. Well, Kendra and I happened to be in Assisi on a Sunday, and I said to her, I said, I got to go down and see if there's like an active like mass or worship service happening at St. Francis's church. I didn't know if it was a museum or what it was. So I walk up and they had a time posted like nine o'clock on Sunday morning. And I said, I said, honey, I'm going to the worship service at St. Francis of Assisi's church. She's like, why would you do that? It's all in Italian. Like you're not going to understand anything. I said, honey, I just got to be there. I said, it's going to be amazing. So I shuffle down to this church a little before nine, and I expected there to be a massive throng of people. I mean, this is St. Francis's church. It's an unbelievable cathedral, and the mosaics, and the, and the stained glass, and it probably seated seven, eight hundred people could pack in there in the pews. And I walk in, and I think I was number ten. I think I was like ten, and I, I stood out. <laughs> they kind of looked at like, you're... You're not our usual, you know, group of 10. And the priests came out and they began to lead the mass. And I just tried to enter in, tried to listen. And it was all in Italian, tried to follow along what was going on. And, but I remember about 10, 15 minutes into the service, I hear this kind of loud shuffling of feet behind me. And the sound of camera click, 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 click. And I'm like, I turn around. 
two giant tour buses had pulled up. 150 German tourists had unloaded and they were walking into St. Francis of Assisi's church, the cathedral, the sanctuary. And they had turned the worship center into a photo op, completely oblivious to the priest who's leading a service, to the few of us who were trying to enter into worship. It was all just, you know, posing and snapping and chatting in German and I've never forgotten that moment when I sat there in this sanctuary and thought, I just kind of stepped back and thought, this is what Jesus spoke about in the New Testament. That you can get so steeped in religion that you miss Jesus. The scribes, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they were supposed to be the one preparing the way for the Messiah. And the Messiah was born six miles south in Bethlehem, and they missed him. The the religious leaders in Matthew 2 were like the German tourist showing up at St. Francis of Assisi's church in Italy. They were enamored with the religious history, completely oblivious to the act of worship in the center of the sanctuary. That church is attention. That still happens today. Some of you maybe were raised in an environment. You might have, been, you might have gone through all the religious classes, maybe even gone to a religious school, gone through confirmation. You memorized the things you need to memorize. You quoted the things you needed to quote. You give an answer to the ways you need to give an answer. You went through the rituals. You went through the routines. You went through all the religious traditions. But the older you've become, you look back and you go, I miss Jesus. Christmas week thrust this upon us. Church, in the midst of everything we're doing, tradition is wonderful. History is great. It's important. We're telling the stories. We're setting some of our own traditions. As Ryan was saying, we're teaching kids the song. That's all so important, but it can't be done at the absence of Jesus. The center of this season is him. And so, by God's grace, everything we're going to do is try to draw attention and to point the focus and the spotlight on his entry and the implications of this entry in the world. And if we have to shed some preferences and traditions and history to do it, then I want to encourage you that maybe that's where the Lord finds you this Christmas week. Maybe it's been a year where you've been a little bit more like the German tourists having a photo op, thinking about your religious history. And Jesus is coming to you this morning and say, huh, it's supposed to be about a personal spiritual experience with the Savior. That's what Christmas is about. You see, for Herod, it was too much about self. Like, he, self, he couldn't, he couldn't get beyond himself and the threat to the kingdom of self, and he missed Jesus. To the religious leaders, they were just distracted and confused because they were kind of so steeped in their traditions and holding so tightly to the way they expected the Messiah to come that they missed him six miles south in Bethlehem. And they were focused on snapping photos at all their traditions. 
And there's still one more group, thankfully, in the story of Matthew 2. It's the Magi. The Magi in verse 9. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. Listen to this. And the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. Huh. So listen, I know the Magi are the learned ones. I don't think it need, you, don't need, you don't need a real PhD in wisdom or knowledge to follow those instructions. Can you picture the, the star moving, stopping over Bethlehem, over the scene of the manger? Just stop there. And the Magi are like, I uh, guess we found our spot. Verse 10, when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Verse 11, on coming to the house, notice their response. They saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. There's your two key phrases for the Magi, bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, of incense, and of myrrh which is their offering, which you often hear us talk about here. This is why we see like the giving of our gifts back to the Lord is central to our worship. Do you see it's all tied together? They were bowing and worshiping, yes, with the posture of their bodies and their hearts and their stuff. So the Magi's response was one of wonder, awe, and worship. Do you see this, church? Do you see like the more clearly the folks in Matthew 2, the ones who saw Jesus most clearly are the ones then that the appropriate heart posture, the response was one of bowing and worshiping. See, the more clearly you see who Jesus is, the more you understand that the only way to enter into the presence of a king is this, church. This is how you enter in the presence of a king. See, this is what Herod was used to seeing when people rolled into his palace. This is what Caesar was used to seeing at that time. And there's one born in the obscurity of a manger on the outskirts of Bethlehem to which the Magi come and they recognize. This is, they see who really is in this manger. They know the story no doubt, say, have a few conversations with Mary. And if you have any dialogue with Mary, you'd say, it's a unique circumstance. <laughs> Mary's never been with a man, and yet Mary's with child. And then this child is carried to full term, and this child comes into the world, and the Magi come, and they see, say, he's the long-awaited Savior. He's the anointed one. He's the Messiah. He's the one who's come to rescue his people from their sin. And in the presence of a king, they know they're in the presence of a king. And so what do they do? They kneel, and they bow, and they worship. When I had the opportunity to visit Jerusalem and the Bethlehem area in 2017, I got to go to the Church of the Nativity. If you've ever visited or seen picture of the Church of the Nativity, there's typically a very long line to enter. And there was the day we showed up. I couldn't figure out why the line was exceptionally long and why it moved so slow until I got to the entrance. I put a picture in your notes. It's called the Entry of Humility. When they constructed the church of the nativity in Bethlehem, which the archaeologists are pretty confident this is the physical space where Mary gave birth. So they built a massive 
church over the top of it. So that's why you go there, to go to the area. And... But to enter in, there's one entrance into the church of the nativity in Bethlehem. The entry of humility. It's built, the doorway is about this high. And it's about this wide. So that everyone, when you come up to the door, what do you have to do to enter? You see, you can't enter the church of the nativity. You can't go through that doorway Herod's way. You can't go through it the scribes and the teachers of the law way. You got to go through it the way of the Magi, where you bow. Because you recognize you're in the presence of a king. You see, the more clearly you see who Jesus is, church, the more clearly the appropriate posture of response to Christmas is you kneel and you bow and you worship because you're in the presence of no ordinary baby. The king, capital king of all kings is here. And so, church, this is Christmas week. And we've all got a lot of wonderful traditions this week. And perhaps many of you traveling, I hope so, being able to be with family and friends and have memories and share gifts and meals and hopefully gather in some sanctuary somewhere for some worship services. And in the midst of everything that we're doing, lighting candles and reading scripture and seeing songs, church, we've got to make a commitment together that we don't miss Jesus. We can't miss him this week. We can get so consumed with sometimes the activities of the Christmas season that we can maybe get a little, maybe that little Herod inside of us just starts rising up in the kingdom of self this week. Maybe just needs to, it needs to bow. Or maybe too locked in to certain traditions and Religious history, and maybe that needs to be relinquished a little bit. But may this be a week, church, where God finds us in this posture. Because this week, we welcome a king. And when you're in the presence of a king, you kneel, you bow, and you worship. That's what you do when you're in the presence of a king. And this is a week where we remember that God sent his son to be savior of all and king, king. And so I thought about talking to Carl about maybe we build a little like new doorway for Christmas Eve. He's not feeling it, but I'm just saying, like, <laughs> maybe we build a little doorway at Christmas Eve, and we build it about this high. So I hope that when you gather with us on, on Christmas Eve, that we, we come in with hearts, just we can't go into this week Herod's way, can't go into this week the scribes and the teachers of the law way. 
I think the Magi show us the way in this one. We see, we bow, and we worship. Let's pray. Lord, we just pause. Uh, it is such an amazing week. Maybe we've been racing at a pace that we get to this Sunday and just go, we got to pause. I mean, the implications of what we're discussing this week and what we're remembering, the songs that we're singing and the stories that we're talking about, the implications are eternity altering. And it's the stuff that's going to matter 100 plus years from now. And and so maybe you're here this morning and this is the first time you've really thought about your personal response to Christmas, to Advent, to Jesus' entry. And I just want to invite you, in the quietness of your heart, you can just yield right now. Maybe this morning it's become clear that it's been a little too much about self and me, my, and I, and there just needs to be a relinquishment, maybe just a surrender and and you can just say, Jesus, I surrender. I believe you are who you said you are. I believe you came to save us from our sin. Save me. Here's my heart. I confess my sin. I invite you into my life. Forgive me. Lead me. Here's my one and only life. Given over to you. King Jesus. Or maybe there's some others, it's, it's just been a time and a period in your own life where it's just become cluttered and distracted, maybe kind of drifted a little bit, pulled away from what you know is to be the center of all this right now. You can just, just come back and say, I'm just going to get centered right now. I'm going to stop shuffling around like German tourists with a camera about all this stuff. And I'm going to enter into the sanctuary with my heart yielded. And so, God, would you help us collectively this week enter in, opening up the eyes of our soul to see you more clearly than maybe we've seen you in a while. And as we see you more clearly, would you call forth this posture of bowing, of kneeling, of worshiping. But we recognize we're in the presence of a king. And so we offer you the whole of our lives offered up. Our attention, our focus, our resources, everything we have is yours because we're in the presence of a king unlike any other king. So receive our worship, receive our attention, receive our focus, our praise and exaltation of you. Jesus of Nazareth, born in Bethlehem, Savior of the world. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.